Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and this is High Performance. Before we get going, just a quick reminder that we are about to embark on our next live High Performance Tour night. We've created a brand new theatre show about this podcast with amazing guests, live music, incredible messages. You will leave feeling inspired. If you want to join us in London, Nottingham, Oxford, Northampton, Glasgow, Cardiff, Guildford, Leeds or Salford, all you need to do is head to the High Performance Podcast. Dot com and click tour or just search for the high performance tour tickets are available now and we would love to meet you anyway welcome to the show as always this podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition your purpose your story they're all there we just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. Right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to one of the smartest young football coaches on the planet so he can be your teacher. And listen, don't switch off if you don't like football, because this conversation is about life. It's about resilience. It's about setbacks. It's about self-belief. It's incredible. Today, this is what's in store. Obviously, at that point, it's sort of code red. It's, it's, it's very serious. So they they drilled through my skull to start draining the blood as soon as possible. And that bought time to, to then go to the operating theatre and open me up and, and sort of see what was going on. I had to accept sacrificing my whole life to get to a certain level, to, to live this life, to, to enjoy playing football. Um, that had been taken away from me. That was my dream as a kid to to go and play at White Hart Lane and score at White Hart Lane. That that was my dream. That was the ultimate dream as as a kid, and I achieved that, which is which is pretty cool. I had an out of body experience. I had this vision where I was looking down on myself with my wife and two children, and at the time we we didn't have kids, so I, I visualised myself. I had this dream or out of body experience. I had a son. I had a daughter, and that's what I've got now. It was a decision they made. And they felt that I was the right man to to take the final seven games. I'd experienced a lot. I'd spent a lot of time on the grass and I'd done the yards to, to earn that and feel comfortable to say, I am ready. Absolutely. So in this episode, we welcome to the High Performance Podcast, the first team coach at Tottenham. Ryan Mason. He's actually someone who's been working very closely with the team in the last few weeks because the Tottenham Hotspur manager, Antonio Conte, has had a period of recuperation after illness. And alongside the assistant manager, Christian Stellini, Ryan has been integral in keeping the club going. But you're going to hear a story about what happened the night that Ryan's world changed forever, the night that he suffered a really serious brain injury on the field of play. You'll hear him talk about the shock when he was told by the doctors about the severity of the injury, the support from the people around him, what the road to recovery was like, the realisation that actually he would not play again. And he talks in really moving detail about how hard that was. But then comes the really good stuff. Then comes the comeback. Then comes his reaction to the hand that he'd been dealt. How he communicates, what drives him, what did he draw on? The day that Jose Mourinho lost his job at Spurs and Ryan was asked to take the team and become the youngest ever Premier League manager, including leading Spurs into a cup final. This conversation is moving, it's inspiring, it's uplifting, it's revealing in equal parts. And I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us once again for a brand new episode of High Performance as we welcome a man with a truly remarkable story. 
Ryan Mason. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Um, there's so many places we could start this conversation. You've done so much in your playing career, now in your coaching career. You know, the youngest person to ever manage a Premier League football match. Do you mind if we start at the moment that I think is the reason you're sitting here now as a as a 31-year-old coach in the Premier League rather than a player? Yeah, let's talk. So, January 2017. Yep. You're on the pitch at Stamford Bridge playing for Hull. What are your memories of, of that match? Excited. Um, we, had a, we had a new manager probably two or three weeks prior to that. The whole feeling around the club had changed. We felt confident going into it. I always loved playing at those types of stadiums. Um, obviously had that rivalry with being an ex-Tottenham player as well. So I was up for it. I remember I was, I was going toe-to-toe, man-for-man with, with Kante at the time, who was probably the best central midfielder in, in world football. So... I wanted that challenge and um, obviously it was it was a Premier League game and your your senses are so heightened, your energy is up, the adrenaline's there and yeah, obviously unfortunately for me that that incident happened quite early on in the game. Okay, so it was a head clash with Gary Cahill. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the actual moment? Yeah, I remember everything. Do you? Um, people were amazed. I was conscious the whole time through the incident. So tell us, walk us through in your head then, when you think back to it, what do, what do you see? I see the ball. Um, I see the ball coming to me. I, I kind of took a couple of steps to clear the ball, kind of flick the ball on out the danger zone, out of the area. And yeah, then the impact hit. And then the body kind of, I mean, the adrenaline being pumped through must have been intense. And the pain was pretty unbearable I remember that I, I, I could feel it was it was quite a serious thing I, I don't know why the body I guess was just telling me that and um, yeah I heard voices I, I heard people speaking process of getting off the pitch 
putting a neck brace on, getting to the ambulance, going to the hospital. It was, it was painful. I remember it was, it was, it was very, very painful. And yeah, I'd be lying if, if I wasn't scared and I feared a lot. That's for sure. So what were the kind of conscious thoughts you were having in between this, this searing pain? What were the kind of comments you were making to yourself, Ryan? I think it was just about managing pain, to be perfectly honest. And then when I got in the ambulance, I remember my dad, he, he said these words that just were so powerful. He said, you're a strong boy. And I remember in that moment, it, it almost like fueled me with, with energy to yeah. sort of fight the pain, I guess. Then in the ambulance, I get filled with drugs and painkillers. And by the time I got to the hospital, it was, yeah, I was, I was out of it. So when did you first become aware that this wasn't just a clash of heads that would have you on the sidelines for a couple of weeks? I'd probably say a day, two days after when I fully come round, I was fully conscious. I realised that I had the best part of 50 staples in my head. Doctors were monitoring me every three or four hours and you can tell, you can tell by the look on people's faces. My, my parents were worried. My, my wife now was was at my bedside she was she was scared and I think you get a feeling you you can sense it um luckily for me I was I was out of it for the best part of 20 22 hours a day so the pain that I felt was was only physical um when I was awake and I guess I was quite lucky in in that stage because I didn't get to see myself and I was just I was just recovering whereas my wife my family my friends my, my people close to me had to to come and see me in this state of sort of this vulnerability where there was just so much uncertainty at the time of where I was going to sort of come, come, come back round to. Let's talk about that then. So you've gone from the fear on the stretcher being taken out of Stamford Bridge, not knowing what was going on. Was there a moment where you kind of had to say to yourself, right, use what you know to be strong here? Or did it feel quite a natural process to, to have what you describe as a strong mental approach to this? Yeah, initially it felt natural yeah. um, because the body's powerful um the body was telling me i needed to sleep and i was listening and just sleeping and then when i was conscious it was just a, a feeling of i need to get out of this hospital i need to i need to recover i need to get back playing football that that was that was my initial thoughts which were crazy at the time but i just wanted to get better but this is different though because this is a head injury right mm. this isn't a broken leg that heals in a linear way you know head injuries are notoriously complex so let's go to the moment where you were first told, like, this is, this is serious. Who, who delivered that news to you? Yeah, I, I can't put a specific moment, moment on it, to be honest. I've got a diary at home of everything. I'm sure it would be in there. Yeah. But everyone close to me protected me initially. I didn't know that I had a tube in my head that, that they had to drain the blood from when, when the incident happened because I went unresponsive and I had to drain the blood from my brain as soon as possible. So... Four days in, a doctor comes in and says, right, we're, we're taking the tube out of my head. And I was like, whoa, I've got a tube in my head? What do you mean? And he was like, yeah, it's, it's fine. It, it won't hurt. And the next thing I know is he's pulling this out and stitching my skin up So on, when was on that done head. to you? I think that was three or four days after. But when, when did it go in? Oh, when, so I got to the hospital and just before I went in to, to get scanned, I went unresponsive. So obviously at that point it's sort of code red is is very serious so they they drilled through my skull to start draining the blood as soon as possible and 
that brought time to to then go to the operating theatre and open me up and, and sort of see what was going on. So I wasn't aware of that initially. And like I say, I had, I think I had 48 staples in my head, but I didn't know that until they came around and said, right, we're going to take your staples out. So I'm sort of sitting there like, what's actually, what does this look like? How, how bad is this? Um, I didn't know, to be honest, Jake. It, it took me a long time to to realise and understand the severity of it. My my parents, my my wife, the doctors protected me. I remember the surgeon come round maybe on day seven and just said, oh yeah, he'll be up and running soon. He just had this blasé approach about everything and I heard him say that and thought, oh, okay, this this isn't that serious. Um, but obviously when, when I started to try to walk and, and stand up and all of these things, it, it kind of hit home that yeah, this is, this is quite a serious thing and this is going to take some time to, to get better. There's real parallels in your situation with another guest that we've had on, a young racing driver called Billy Munger that was involved in a catastrophic accident and described to us waking up from a five-day induced coma and looking down and realising that he'd had both his legs amputated above the knee. What we were intrigued about when talking to Billy and interested in your answer to this is, how do you make that mental adjustment? Because he talks about, at first you're thinking, who do I blame? Who can I direct my anger to? Or where does my bitterness go? And then eventually it's, I say, how do I just get on with this and get my life back on track? How did that happen for you? Yeah, I think for me that was probably further down the line um, because initially it was just this, this feeling and this desire to get better. I need to recover. I need to do whatever it takes to, to get better, to to start walking again, to, to start running, to start playing football again. So my only focus was on that. As time went on and I was at home and I started doing more, being a bit more active, I think naturally you, you start to get angry. Like, why did that happen? Um, and you're constantly fighting with those demons, I guess, to am I going to allow myself to, to get down and start thinking, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. Maybe if I would have headed the ball that way, then this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe if all of these things go through your head, but I felt so strong mentally in that moment that I was able just to, to brush them away and say, no, like I'm going to come back. I'm going to be better than what but, I was before. But just talk us through the granular detail of how you do that, because there's lots of people listening to this that be like, I'd love to have that mental strength or I'd like to be able to brush those feelings of anger or bitterness away. Mm -hmm. Can you give us any specific techniques that you employed to be able to do that? Yeah, I mean, previous experiences helped uh, what I've gone through in, in life. Being doubted. So one that springs to mind would be a lone spell in France when I went to, to Lorient in January. Didn't play a minute. After two weeks, I spoke to the manager and he said it wasn't his decision. You can go back to Tottenham if you want. And that kind of decision in that moment saying, no, do you know what? I'm not going back. I can't go back. Uh, it's embarrassing to go back. I need to prove to you that, that I can play. I'm, I'm going to stay. Fast forward five months, the end of May, I, I didn't play a minute, but I stuck it out. Uh, I stayed in France on my own. I lived on my own for five months. Uh, I tried to, to learn the language. My I Skype called my, my family and friends every day. They were supportive and helped me get through, but I was, I was very conscious at the time that this was almost like it, it probably had more value than, than actually playing because next year, next pre-season, I'm, I'm going to be hungrier than, than ever. I'm going to be mentally stronger than, than I've ever been because of this moment. 
I knew that there would have been so many people got on the first plane back to England, get in their comfort zone, run their family, run their friends and have four or five months at Tottenham's training ground, which is one of the best in the world and just kind of take their foot off the gas a little bit. But in that moment, it was, no, I need to, I need to knuckle down. I need to, to work harder and um, I'll be better for it. So your journey so far in this story has been, you know, the head injury, incredibly painful, but you think people get injured in football. Then you're in the hospital and you don't really know what's happened to you. The, you know, tube in your head, the 50 staples. Then you come out of hospital and you're thinking, right, now's the time to get back and to recover. When is the first conversation about you might not have a future as a footballer? So in terms of someone telling me that, I think it was in the September. So I had, I had the scan. This is I had the, nine months later. Nine months after, yeah. So we wanted to just wait um, to let the body heal. In the June, in the summer, I remember I went on a, a training camp to Portugal. So at the start of the training camp, I hadn't run. I hadn't jogged. I literally just walked. And the, the muscle memory w- was incredible. By the end of the two weeks, I was... I was pretty much doing everything. I was sprinting. I was. I was, I was running. I, I was doing doing the lots. So my mind had cleared in that sense. The doctor's advice was the skull needs time to to heal to fuse back together because I've got twelve metal plates in there. It needs time to to fuse and, and get strong again. So we'll scan you in September. Yeah. So I come to you in June time. Mm-hmm. You've just finished this couple of weeks on the grass, and I say to you, "Are you going to play again?" What's your answer at yeah, that point? Yeah, September. No doubts, no, no, no fears. There was no doubts and it was, it was all geared towards that scan and it was around the time where it was the first round of the Carabao Cup and the game was on the Tuesday. I remember on the, on the Monday, Nigel Atkins was the manager at the time. Obviously me being me, I, I was fit. I, I felt like I was stronger than I'd ever been before. I said, I can play tomorrow. I'm ready. And he was like, yeah, yeah we'll see. We'll, we'll see. So I joined in the training on the Monday. I went for the scan that Monday afternoon and it was like... Phew, this is this is not good. The the gaps in the skull they're they're just too big. It's the hole where the the pipe had sort of been put in. It hasn't fused well enough. There there was just gaps everywhere. And I think at that point the club naturally probably thought he's done. Um, there's no chance he's going to play again. And we had those conversations. But Hull, the the chairman Iab was was excellent. He sort of said, look, we'll we'll give it another six months and and see where you're at then. So my mind had gone from, right, I'm going to play tomorrow to the next checkpoint was, was February and six months time, the next scan. So I had six months of training on my own. I was going to the hospital four times a week to, to an oxygen chamber because the, there was a correlation between reducing oxygen to bone healing. And I'd done all this for five months with the end goal that I'm going to play again in February. And give us your mindset at this point then, because I've spoken to footballers who have two weeks out with a hamstring strain and they struggle. Like, are we still talking here about optimistic Ryan, thinking everything's going to be okay? Yeah, absolutely. So at the time, so I'd left Tottenham and got to the Champions League to go to Hull to pursue my career and sort of grow again and, and come back to the highest level again. By the time I'd come back ready to play again, the club had been relegated or in the Championship. So... For me, it was, I need three months to just prove that, that I'm Ryan Mason and I'm going to get my Premier League move again or hopefully get hold back in the Premier League. But I need to get back to that level. It was, it was an obsession. I, I can't play in the championship. I'd, I'd worked 23 years to 
be a Premier League player. I'd I'd got there. I'd achieved it. I'd had I'd had my Premier League games, and oh, I can't be a Championship player. That's that's not right. Well, let's talk about consistency though, because at this stage now we're coming up to what is it over a year since mm-hmm. you've had the accident, you've had this comeback date that's then been pushed back, and I can see the obvious incentive, like the outcome of playing first team football again, maybe getting a move or getting whole promoted. But what keeps you going on the, like a cold February morning when you're tired, you're still six months from a decision of whether you can come back and you, you'd have an excuse to stay in bed half an hour longer or decide not to put the full effort in when you go to the gym. How did you overcome that resistance? Dreaming. Uh, honestly, uh, I'm massive on visualisation. Consciously thinking, imagining certain situations. I imagined myself playing for Tottenham again. That was probably the goal. I'd left them, but now the new goal to to get back to that level and, and go and play for Tottenham again, go and go and play for England again. So every day I was, I was I was at home or on the pitch, and yeah, you have these thoughts, these images of this this dream to to kind of achieve that, this obsession to to get there. I guess. So did you have self doubt? No, Jake, I had no doubts, honestly. I, Mate, your yeah. self-belief was uh, rock solid then. Yeah, I mean, I to to kind of answer that question, I, I played for Tottenham, my Premier League debut was at 23. Considering I, I made my my debut for Tottenham at 17 in the Europa League, I went and played in League One at 18 uh, for Yeovil and had a full season there. So I had five full seasons where it was this end goal, this obsession... I can't accept anything less. I can't, I can't accept. If I leave Tottenham now, then I'll regret that for the rest of my life. And I, do, I don't like regretting things. I, I, don't, I don't, don't think that's a good thing. And if, if you go with your gut and if, if, you, if you really believe in something, then I don't think you'll, you'll regret things. And I don't regret anything. I, I, I could accept retiring because I dedicated my life to football to, to get into the highest level. And... It's, it was easier to come to terms with retiring because I knew deep down that I couldn't have really done any more. So how did the retirement come about? It was more scans. So I, I had a scan on the, the skull, but then at that point we, we decided, you know what, I, I think we need to look at the brain as well and, and scan the brain and, and see where that's at. And that got damaged quite bad. And that was taken out my hands at that point. I, I spoke to sort of three or four specialists, so some professors, and they were like, look, you can't play football again. If you do, then the risk of dementia goes up to 45%. The risk of this goes up to 60%. And all of these things, these numbers, it was like, whoa, it's quite definitive, I guess. And it Did you was, try and fight it? When I heard those, no. Um, I just had a child. So my son was three or four weeks old. And it kind of just made me realise that, oh, do you know what? Like, I've got another purpose now. I've got to be a good dad. I've got a son. I've got this this new energy that I can devote to to something else. This this, this whole new world has opened up, and the timing was great. <laughs> Honestly, the the timing of the whole thing. If if I look back, it was it was perfect. But well, one of the characteristics that you said has been invaluable on your journey was the inner circle, that trusted group of. Mm people that you'd learn to surround yourself with. How did they react to this news? Relief. Yeah, massive relief. The day I said I had to retire, my mum, my dad, my wife now, um, it was like a, it was a, it was a weight off their shoulders. Um, they, they mentioned it before, but they realised that I was so obsessed with coming back 
that I think they recognised. You know what? We need to just let him do it. We need to we need to support him. We need to be there. We, we've said we would rather you not play, but they accepted that it was never an option. The day I retired, the day I said I retired, it was emotional. Um, I'm not going to lie. It was it was very emotional for me, my my mum, my wife, my my dad, everyone close to me. It was it was tough, but. What, Once what I, made you emotional at that point? I wasn't going to achieve my dreams. The, the new dreams that I'd sort of imagined every day for a year, I wasn't going to have that. And it, it was sad. It was sad that I had to accept sacrificing my whole life to get to a certain level, to, to live this life, to, to enjoy playing football. Um, that had been taken away from me. It, it wasn't nothing I'd done um, because I wouldn't change anything that I'd done in that incident. I, I would do it again tomorrow. It was difficult to accept and the months after retiring were, were tough because you soon realise that, do you know what, I'm, I'm not a footballer no take, more. Yeah, take us there. It was, it, was, it was tough. Obviously, like I said, I had my son who was this focus. My, my wife is just amazing. She's been amazing through, through everything, the recovery, the, the whole process. She was supportive. She realised that I needed to, to go and find something else, go and find a, a new obsession which was golf initially. So I learned to play the piano. And then after time, sort of had two or three months away from football, it was kind of had this urge to, to get back in. And I spoke to some people at the club, John McDermott, at the time, the academy manager, he said, look, come in, get a feel for it and just see where it goes. Well, so on all this doctor's advice and all those stats that you were told and the damage to the brain and the gaps in your skull, the pull of the game was so strong that you still tried yeah jake i i so i grew up playing football in my garden i used to come home and play football at break time football at lunchtime i'd come home and play football and then my dad or my mom or, or my family would take me to chigwell to go and train it was this 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 love of the game this this obsession where i never felt tired when i was young it was just this joy of kicking a ball against a wall or kicking a ball in a goal in an empty goal and having this dream, imagining I'm scoring at White Hart Lane because that was my dream as a kid to, to go and play at White Hart Lane and score at White Hart Lane. That, that was my dream. That was the ultimate dream as, as a kid. And I achieved that, which is, which is pretty cool. That's um, something I look back on and it always gives me a good feeling inside. But yeah, during those moments, there, there was new dreams. There was new dreams of coming back to play for England again because I, I only had one cap. I was in sort of four or five squads and... I believe I would have played for England again. If you ask me now, I'd probably be playing for England. I'm 31. I'm in my prime. I'm, I would have got more England caps. So that was that was the pull to come back and prove that, that I am I'm a, I'm a good player. See, what really interests me in your answer is this phrase you've used a few times about the dream. The dream kept you consistent, training on your own. The dream of scoring at White Hart Lane for Spurs was what kept you through that five years of going out on loan from 17 to 23 when you made your breakthrough. And I'm interested in the technique of dreaming because all those dreams were almost obvious ones to take when you're on that path of being a footballer, but then the rug gets pulled from under you and you've now got to, you've got a blank canvas. How do you go about dreaming to give you that new focus? Because I'm thinking for people listening to this of that maybe are stuck in a career or maybe at an age where they're starting to plot their life ahead. I think what you're describing is something really, a really powerful technique. Yeah, I think naturally I've always been someone who visualises. So when yeah. I was young, I, I'd done the same thing. 
But tell us about visualisation for somebody that's never done it or wouldn't know where to start with it. Yeah, I think, I, I guess it's, if you desire something, so one, how do you get there? But then I guess you've always got to have the, the end in mind. Um, if you, if I wanted to play for England, I wasn't going to visualise me going to the gym at four o'clock in the afternoon and grinding and going through all those difficult times because that doesn't send signals to my body. It doesn't give me joy. It doesn't give yeah. me happiness. But if I see myself playing for England, putting on that England shirt, then it makes me come alive. It, it, it gives you gives you energy. That's quite powerful. And it, it's interesting in terms of dreaming because I, when I when I went unresponsive in in the hospital, I had an out of body experience, and I remember Glenn Hoddle might have, might have spoke about it on on one of one of the podcasts, and I had this vision where I was looking down on myself with my wife and two children. And at the time, we, we didn't have kids. So I, I visualized myself. I, I had this dream or out-of-body experience. I had a son. I had a daughter. And that's what I've got now, which is, which is really strange. But it was a massive help in my recovery because it kind of, in that moment where I died, I guess, my body stopped working, I was unresponsive, the thing that I craved and wanted the most was a family it's always in my head, even now, like I think about it all the time when I go through sort of tough moments or challenging periods. Oh, I've, I've got a wife, I've got a son and got a daughter. And that moment where everything was lost, everything was gone. That was my body's way of saying, Do you know, what? this is what you value the most. It's a massive help to, to me now, a massive help because mentally I'm ready, I'm prepared for anything. And I know that whatever happens, I've yeah, I've got what I always wanted. I love that. You know what I like about that is we're so defined by what we do, aren't we? You know, the first question you ask anyone, you meet, oh, nice to meet you. What, what do you do? And actually you've taken it far beyond just, you know, just being a footballer mm -hmm. to something much more real, which is being a parent and, you know, handing on everything you know to your children. And it feels, um, it just feels so much more real. Isn't it amazing how, like, the truth can come to you in the strangest of circumstances? Massively, massively. And I read a lot of books. I, I love reading. And I think that's why I think naturally for age, uh, I've, I've grew quite a bit. The awareness that I need to grow, I need to, I need to learn, I need to be open-minded. It's, it's allowed me to, to get to this point, I guess. But having kids gives more responsibilities, more challenges. And it's tough because you have so many different roles to fulfill. And consciously, I need to be so aware that I, I need to be the best version of me in every moment so I go into the club I'm, I'm a coach I need to be the best coach I go home I need to be the best husband the best dad to my kids I'm a son I've got so many different relationships that you have to be present in in all the moments throughout the day it's a great mindset to have I'm interested in when you stopped fighting though for your football career when was that moment <laughs> well not that long ago probably Two years ago. Um, you retired in? I retired in 2018, February. And so for two years? Two, three years. Two, three years on, you fought for the game? Yeah, wow. I, I'd say I fought. I used to sometimes join in training. When I worked in the academy, so I went back, I worked in the academy. Some days I would join in with the under-18s, the under-23s. And, and what were you secretly thinking? good enough to play again. I'm in my prime. I had phone calls with the doc, Doc Waller, uh, Mark Waller, who was my whole doctor at the time. We've probably had a few conversations over the last few years. Doc, do you know what? 
thinking of coming back and within 10 seconds he shuts me down and, and that was it and you know that happened probably every two or three months I'd go home to my wife and I said Rachel I'm gonna come back I, I, I want to go through it all again I, I need to and she sort of kind of would talk me out of it well there's something around the concept of cognitive dissonance here isn't there because the idea of cognitive dissonance says that you can hold two competing thoughts in your head at the same time but you can only focus essentially on one of them you know, so you can have the idea of that I'm still Ryan the footballer and then I'm also Ryan the coach. But there's only one of them. You can only move in the direction of one. So when did you replace it and be and start to have a more powerful vision of Ryan the coach rather than the footballer? I think time was, was a good thing. I managed the first ever game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the under-18s against Southampton. That give me this this different buzz yeah. that you don't get as a so player. So how quickly did you get back into coaching after stopping playing? A uh, couple of months. A couple of months part-time. I was going Why in. did you give yourself such a short period of... Just love the game. Yeah. Love football. I love being on the grass. I love, I love watching football. It's all I've ever known. Um, I spent decades trying to be a footballer. I, I give my whole life to that game and the next two, three, four decades, I'm, I'm going to love football. I know that. And there was, there was an opportunity to go back to, to the club that I loved, the club that I do love and work and help people because I valued so much the people that helped me get to where I got to, the influence of certain individuals that are a big part of my life now, how they affected me and, and got inside of my mind, my, my body and made me feel a certain way. But what stands out for me in listening to your whole incredible story Ryan is just how conscious you've been whether that's as a footballer you were conscious of how to improve how to make the most out of loan spells or that example in France and as a parent how to be conscious of maximising the time I'd like you to expand in more detail on how you become that coach that shapes people's lives because I get the integrity and acting with authenticity piece but I think you're aware of some of the methods that you use to get that emotional connection, to make people feel they can run through brick walls. And I think there's a lot of listeners that would want to understand how you do that so they could do it yeah, themselves. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess what comes to mind, I, I've been very lucky to be exposed to so many great people, uh, first of all, but then they've been great football people as well. And in my environment, I, I guess... I guess it's what you praise, what you value. Um, what do you value? Respect, hard work, people who you want to listen, want to improve, because then I feel like you can, you can really invest time into them and you can get results. Luckily for me, my mind was shaped by my parents, the people that I was exposed to in football. So my loan spells get thrown into a, a new football club, go out and loan to, to Yeovil, you go into a new changing room. Who are you going to align yourself with? You need to be very aware, I guess. So what type of person I am? I, I'm someone who wants to work hard, respectful, wants a team to do well. Okay, I, I'm probably going to naturally gravitate towards those people. And then that becomes contagious. You know, I, I, I'm a strong believer in, in the energy that, that we give off. It's, it's so contagious. Um, you need to find strength, some way to, to try and focus on positive things. And I was lucky. I, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'll say that I was probably quite 
pessimistic when I was very young, but my family's just constantly drilled things into me and to be positive, to, to focus on the good things and to be grateful, have gratitude for, for what you have got. And then that becomes a habit, that becomes a way of thinking. And then you can, you can align yourself with the same sort of people. You can be open and, and sort of try and take things from them to, to grow even more, or you can, you can influence other people. And then it just becomes a, a way of life, I guess. So you use that term energy, and that's a direct quote that we had when we were lucky enough to sit down with your former manager, Maurizio Pochettino. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you mm-hmm. mean by energy, because he said that was a big <laughs> defining factor of his own coaching. Yes, big. I mean, I guess that's why I played under him. Um, he was the one that gave me my debut, and I played many games under, under Maurizio. Body language is massive, right. so you can be aware of what you're doing. You can you can tell yourself, no, do you know what? I'm going to go into this room with my shoulders back, my chest up, and betray confidence, for example. Or if you're down, um, or something negative's happened, try and smile. These sort of things are a training to a certain extent because we're we're always dealt with with obstacles. Nothing straightforward in my line of work, in my life, you know, my children get ill. There's things that, that always challenge us. And if you constantly focus on negative things, then that's going to have effect on, on you, the people around you, your energy, how you walk in a room, as opposed to, okay, if, if I focus on what's positive or how can we get out of this moment? What, what do we need to do to, to get to this state of happiness or this state of real positivity? There's small wins that you can get along that along that road. Let's role play then, right? When you <laughs> when you became the Spurs boss, who called you? Chairman. The chairman. So after obviously the news had been broken to to the management team, yeah, the chairman. We had a conversation. Daniel Levy. Yes. So you get a phone call from Daniel. Jose Mourinho's gone. You're about to become the youngest manager in the history of the Premier League. Tell us about the positivity and the self-belief and what the mind does. So I've just said those words to you. I'd love to know what went through your head at that moment. I'm ready. So what you said to him? Yeah, because if I wasn't, I wouldn't have took it. I, w- I would never have put myself in a position where I felt like, do you know what, this is too much. Because I don't then, even know if you're ready though. You see, I think, were you ready, who knows? It's a, it's a self-belief belief, yeah. and optimism. Like you are one of the most optimistic people I've ever sat and had a conversation with for all the things that you've been through. And I think that, you know, sometimes it's great to just gamble on optimism, to gamble on the fact that everything will be great. Because the truth is, you didn't know if you were ready or not. How, how could you? You'd no, never done it before. No, and I think the footballing world probably looked at it and thought, oh, what are they doing? But I'm around the club a lot and that was their feeling. That was uh, the feeling that I... Given them, I guess, they could trust me. They had full trust in me because they'd got rid of one of the most successful managers in the world for, for many different reasons. And it, it, was, it was a decision they made. And they felt that I was the right man to, to take the final seven games. Yeah, it was, it was a big moment. But I'd put in a lot of effort to that point. I think what a lot of people probably don't see, they see a 29-year-old managing in the Premier League. But I'd coached for sort of three and a half years. To that point, I took under-16s, I'd managed under-17s, under-18s, under-19s in Europe. Like I said, I managed the first ever game at a new stadium. I'd experienced a lot. I'd spent a lot of time on the grass and I'd done the yards to, to earn that and feel comfortable to say, I am ready, absolutely. You know that though. 
But when you walk in a room of 20 elite level, often cynical Premier League footballers that are really concerned about their own careers and what's this guy going to do for me and is this the right move from the club? I'd love to know the first thing you said to the group, some of whom, by the way, would have been your teammates when you were playing at Spurs all those years ago. Some of whom would have been older than you were at the time. How did you deal with that? Yeah, the team weren't in a great place at that point. I mean, the confidence was extremely low. They weren't especially fit. So I felt like I had some easy wins straight away. So naturally, I had relationships with some of the players before. They knew what type of guy I was. They knew what type of professional I was. So they respected me. I respected them because we had that relationship. But the reality was they were judging me. So you're being judged every day in, in football. You're, you're being judged, I guess, in every moment in life. In that moment, okay, what, what do they need? What, what do they want to hear? And it had to come from within, I guess. They had to know that I was, I was being real and I showed some sort of passion. And then you, you have to deliver. Do you remember what you said? Yes, my job to help you guys. The only demand, I guess, for me was, might have been like 100% effort to be all in. And then trust me and the team that will help you and give you a, a structure on the football pitch to, to win games of football. And then we had a game sort of 48 hours later against Southampton was 1-0 down at half time. And I don't think Tottenham had come from behind to win a Premier League game in the best part of sort of 18 months, two years. And you could feel that. I remember I had this, I had this sort of team talk in my mind okay how am I going to address them what do we need to do to to change the game train change the momentum and give them confidence and I walked in the, the changing room and talk about that energy the, that you give off it was so flat it was like whoa and it kind of kind of struck me that first thing I had to address was bloody hell guys like come on it's half time like <laughs> there's 45 minutes left like sit up get your chin up get your chest out the, We've got a game. We need, we need to be ready. And you yeah. literally said that to that, them. That was the first message. And then, then it was, look, these are a couple of points on the screen. You come here and it's how we build up and you need to take this position up to help us affect the game. But ultimately, football is a lot about what's inside. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is coming at a period of your life where you're, it's still fresh enough. You can remember coming in and being in that dressing room, waiting for the manager to come in. How much influence do you think a manager really does have at those moments, which is half time when the energy is down? Massive. Uh, they the, do. Yeah. That's, that's a manager's job. It's, it's probably the biggest part of the job. And I look back now and think that half time team talk was probably like the key moment in those six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it was, because I, I feel like they were like, okay, he knows what he's doing. As, as a player, you want to feel a certain way. So okay. the best coaches, the best managers that I've played under, the best people I've come across, they make you feel a certain way. Describe this, so what those feelings are that you're looking for. Belief, um, free to a certain extent. Because when we were kids, we went and played football, we... We were free, right? We, we had this freedom to, to go and sort of be instinctive and just run, run all day. Um, you were never tired. You never got tired playing football as a kid. And the best coaches, the best people I've come across, you have your structure, you have your, your way of playing, this philosophy, this, this idea of how you want your team to play, but you have to transfer energy. You have to give emotion, give passion and make the players play how you want to play. How do you give them energy and belief and freedom? Words, obviously, would probably be one of the, the key ones, but then how you carry yourself, how you say the words as well. I mean, you could, you could read a, a script of the halftime team talk and go, wow, that's, that's powerful. But someone might deliver it and go, he's not connecting with me. Yeah. That's, that's not real. That's not organic. And that's just, different people's personalities. No one's the same. No, no, no one I've come across delivers the same message in the same way. You have to be you. You have to know yourself and, and who you are to, to be so, organic. I so guess. tell us you're on the touchline then and you know that somebody says to you around two minutes and then we've got the lads in at half time. You one nil down to Southampton. You've sensed that lack of energy that's there. Tell us about how you then go through the process of, right, this is going to be a critical moment in my managerial career to change it in there. Tell us how you prepare yourself for it and then what you actually do to transfer that energy. Yeah, so in that, in that moment, I wasn't aware that it was a critical moment. Um, you're just in the moment, you're present. And I'd done in the hundreds of team talks up until that point. And what I always liked as a, as a player was to get back in the changing room and sort of have five or so minutes to sort myself out, to, to go and get a strapping done or go to the toilet and just have an argument with one of the players and call someone out, whatever it was. I feel like players probably need that. They like that. Um, you let emotion out in that moment or you relax, you, you deal with it in certain ways. And I was very, very aware that, okay, the lads have got five minutes and then sort of go into to the coach's office with, with the coaches, my, my trusted analysts at the time. And sort of discuss, right, what do we need to do and what can I show them? There, there was a couple of things I had in mind and we got some images on the laptop. We're going to go and show them that. Then you go and address the lads and 
I think you can plan and prepare in those moments. So when you go back into that coach's office, right, they're going to have a couple of minutes. This is what we're going to show. This is what I, I want to show. I want what I want to get across. But the second you're in front of those lads, it's instinct. You you have to go with it because if it's scripted, it can become false. You can lose the message, lose the passion. For me, you have to go with what you feel in that moment and not hold back. So you win that first game. What's your second one? Yeah, cup final against City. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, this I find fascinating. So it's your second ever game as a senior men's football manager. And it's a cup final for the club you loved as a kid. And there's only one reason why you're managing that team. Because you fractured your skull on a football pitch a few years before. Was there a moment where you considered that? No, honestly, I just just wanted to win. I, w- I was gutted that it was so soon because it's tough to influence so much in five days. It's yeah. the only thing you can really influence is is a is a bit of belief, a bit of confidence, and something like that. You can help from a structure and a tactical point of view, but City were miles ahead of us. They they were miles ahead of us. They were the best. Do you think you could world. have done anything to win that game? When you look at the quality of that team and the quality of your team. Is there anything you could have done to win it? Yeah, of course. We conceded a set piece. Like I look back and think, could I have spent more time on set pieces? Maybe, because they decide a lot of matches. They do. Probably one in three goals in, in football come from a set piece. So, yeah, maybe I would have done it differently. In that moment, it was the right thing for me and I felt yeah. like the team were fully prepared. So if I'm in that moment again in 10, 15 years, and yeah, I would I would do things differently. But... What else would you do? Because I think learning from what you've been through is vital. So, you know, and it'll be interesting, I guess, for Spurs fans listening to this. Like, what do you think you got wrong on that day? And it's a harsh question because it's your second match in charge. And as you say, it came very quickly. Oh, I actually think I got so much right. <laughs> I love Which is that. crazy. Like, I look back and City were the best team in the world at yeah. that point. They were, they were flying we grew into the game. We suffered for 20, 30 minutes. We rode our luck, which is normal, which, which can happen in football. But we were growing and everything that we, we thought was going to happen was happening. We was getting a bit more control, a bit more possession. And we felt like it was going how we wanted to. But like I say, we conceded a set piece and they were better than us on the day, absolutely. So we can accept that. Um, I felt fully prepared for the game, as, as fully prepared as I could have been. When I reflected in the summer and I looked at the work and the progress we'd made over sort of six, seven weeks, I do wish it had come later on because yeah. I think, oh, maybe, maybe we could have influenced the game even more because to change a team in six days is, wow, it's tough. It's tough. We tried. We, we affected them in, in some ways and it was a positive spell, absolutely. And for a man whose calling card is optimism, self-belief, visualisation, did you visualise getting that job full-time and did you believe it was going to come your way because of your natural outlook? No, I didn't. Really? Honestly, it, was, it wasn't the right time. It didn't feel right. It felt right to, to help the club yeah. in that moment. And I felt like I was the right person to take the team to the end of the season, but I needed to grow more. I felt like at 29, the first thing someone would say, you lose a game, he's inexperienced, he's young. And I, I don't want that excuse. It's it's just lazy. And I knew that that would happen. But I went back to the academy. It's not a normal thing to do, to to go and manage the first team for seven games. And then six weeks later, 
go and take a, a bunch of scholars that are just coming through the building and just come out of school and have the same energy, the same desire to to help them. And did to, you? Absolutely. And how was the ego affected by that? My ego was left outside the training ground the day I walked in back to the academy because it wasn't about me. Um, I, I accepted and I knew that the right thing for me at that time was to go back to the academy. How so did you know that though? It was a feeling and I, I didn't want to fight that feeling. Yeah. Of course, I probably could have pushed and gone, do you know what, I might go and manage a League One club and try and get an interview somewhere and it's opened me up to be a manager, but... No, I, want, I wanted to grow. I, I felt like I needed to, to grow more. I needed more time on the grass and it gave me a thirst, absolutely. But at the same time, it made me think, I want to get better. I need to get better. And the best place for me to do that was the academy. And if I went back to the, that academy and had an ego, staff would have felt it. But more importantly, the players would have smelt it. And then I wouldn't have got the results that I felt I did in, in that time with the academy. Amazing. And then Antonio Conte comes in and it's probably worth mentioning for people that don't know this, but he actually visited you in hospital, didn't he? He did. Strange, very strange thing. Um, I made my England debut against his Italy side and my last ever game was, was against Chelsea when he was the manager. He come, you see me, you see my family, made a big, big impact on my family. Obviously I was, I was out of it. But whenever I spoke to my my wife, my parents about Antonio, it was, what a man, what a guy. Didn't have to do it, but he did. Put on record as well that John Terry came, the, the Chelsea captain, and, and William as well. Wow. He was the captain, and in his mind, it was the right thing to do. It, it was a big impact on my family, those sort of things. So why, teammates that came. Like why particularly? What was it that they, that they well, one, valued? One, because it's John Terry and he's, he's the Chelsea captain, the England captain, what he's achieved in his career. But the humbleness to, to come and to pay respect and just to say, like, I hope he's okay. <laughs> simple, yeah, yeah. really simple. And, and William at the time, I, I actually spoke to him the other day when we played Fulham and I always wondered why he came. I can understand John because captain. when you're a captain, you have a responsibility to represent the club in a certain way. And my captain at the time was Michael Dawson, who is a top, top captain as well. But William came and I spoke to him after the game. And I sh it was the first time. It, it had, I had this feeling for so long. I just wanted to ask him, why did you come? And I see him at the game the other day and I went over, I shook, shook his hand and I just said, you come to my bed. I've seen a picture. I don't remember, but I see a picture. And I said, why? And he, he just said, uh, I wanted to see you as okay. And I said, thank you. I just said, thanks. Um, had a big impact on my family. It, it, and I look back now and think, do you know what? what? What a top man. He made me feel a certain way about him without knowing him. I competed against him. Tottenham, Chelsea, we'd competed. So much aggression, so much passion. I don't know the person. I've never, never met the person, but that act of kindness, I guess, it, it made me form an opinion. And I see him the other day and yeah, he didn't disappoint. He's yeah, proper, proper guy. And so now, now you're first team coach working with Antonio. Mm. I'm just so interested in where you fit in the modern game of football. 
because there are so many conversations about aggression and getting amongst them and create fear in the dressing room, you know, and we sit here with you having a conversation about emotional intelligence and intuition and connection and presence. Like, do you feel the game is moving in a direction that allows you to express yourself in this way? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I guess it's in a different format. The game is developing. Ta tactically, teams are getting better. There's no doubt about that. The game's getting quicker. They're becoming more athletic, more robust, more endurance. But I still believe the fundamentals of football are you have to run, you have to fight, you have to compete. It's going to be second balls. And all of these these things will always be there. They'll, they'll always be there. The best, the best teams we see are the best teams are the basics, the, the brilliant basics. And you can affect that. Some groups, some dressing rooms, they might need tough love. They might need to be shouted out. They might need fear. Whereas other dressing rooms might need a different way of connecting to them. And that's probably what separates the best managers, the best coaches, understanding that. And I have been very lucky and I'm very aware that I'm very lucky. I've been exposed to, as a player, some top, top managers. But to be working so closely with one now is, yes, great. Give us the biggest learnings then from life with Antonio Conte. To be yourself, to be honest, to, to live in the moment. Don't be scared to show emotion, um, to show vulnerabilities, to all of these types of things the players respect. But then also to have an obsession to be the best, to work harder than anyone else, to have this desire and transmit this desire that you want your team and you believe your team can, can do anything. So when we go through your whole career and as an aspiring coach, the list of legendary coaches that you've worked with or alongside really is, is a who's who. What I'd like you to do is tell us about who is the best coaches that you've had and what was the one quality about each of them that distinguished them for you? I'm probably going to cheat your question a little bit here, but Chris Ramsey was my yeah. youth, one of, one of the youth team coaches and he, I was physically very immature for my age and I, I was quite a late developer and the belief that I would be a top player, he always said that it'll come. And that just was ingrained in my mind. And then you go through like Alex Inglethorpe, he has these little little golden nuggets, I guess, about like being a goal scorer. Oh, you're going to be obsessed. You're, you're going to score so many goals. You're going to play for Tottenham. You are. You're, you're going to play for England. You're going to play for Tottenham and start believing that. And that. all of these little things, they, they made me feel a certain way. So my Premier League debut under Maurizio, played in the under-21s at the time on the Monday night, away at Sunderland because I was coming back for a, for a little niggle. So at 70 minutes, um, the coaches said, do you want to come off? There's a game Wednesday. I said, no, I'm, I want to play the 90 minutes. I didn't think I was going to play. Played the 90 minutes. The next day I come in and I trained with the first team because I'd been training with them. I had so much energy. I don't know why. It was just I had so much energy. And the following day we played Nottingham Forest at home and we were 1-0 down against the championship side with half an hour to go. I remember he brought me on. He brought me and Harry Kane on, and the crowd were a little bit like they were like. You heard this groan in the crowd. So it was almost <laughs> to say, "What's going on here?" But I scored to make it one-one. Harry scored uh, one of the goals, and we won three-one. And I felt like, "Wow, he believes in me." And I, I asked back now, like, 
John McDermott and, and the coaches at the time, they speak and he asked, how did Ryan do Monday night? This was Tuesday. They said, yeah, his attitude was incredible. Um, asked him to come off at 70. He said, no, I wanted to play for 90. He valued that so much, that desire to, to play, that go back to that youthfulness of as a kid, you wouldn't want to come off at 70 minutes. Why would you want to come off at 23 years old playing a game of football? Some do. A lot of people probably yeah. would have turned around and gone, yeah, I'll come off, I'll protect myself. But that was just me. That was just the way I was. And that held a lot of weight with him. And he, he, he started me against Arsenal that Saturday, North London derby away from home in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. And I was ready. I, was, I knew I was ready. I felt like it should have been years ago, but that moment came and there was no doubt that I was ready. The manager believed in me and he was, okay, well, let's go and show what I'm all about. And So what it. distinguished Pochettino then for you? That What is it, the, the one quality that stands out that you think that's why he's a top, top manager? For me in that moment, it was trust. trust, trust and belief. Lovely. Trust and belief. Quite, quite simple, I guess, but the trust that he could play me in such a big game, probably our biggest game of the season, but then the belief that I could do it. Brilliant. And that, that gave me a sense of like, I can't let him down. Not in a fearful way, a way of, I'll do anything. I, I, I'm going to run, I'm going to run, I'm going to run. I'm, I'm going to do anything to prove that he was right. I trust that, that I'm good enough, but I don't want to play a bad game because it looks bad on him. It's not, I remember asking Chris Casper, uh, who played at Manchester United, what he felt the, that answer was about Alex Ferguson. And, he, and his answer was exactly what you've just said. He said, I just never wanted to let him down. You don't have to shout at me. I just didn't want to let the man down, which was why I would excel. But I think it's really telling of a, a characteristic. So what about someone like Jose Mourinho then? I know that you came back and worked with him. What was it that you saw in him? You can see why he won so many trophies. With, with the best clubs in the world, you can see how he, he would treat certain people to, to get stuff out of them, to push them. Unfortunately, at Tottenham, it, it didn't end well. It didn't, didn't work, I guess, because of how it ended. But you could, you could always see and tell as, as someone why he'd won so much. He just, he just had something, I guess. He well, just had explain something that about something him. to the layperson. I know you're watching from a distance, but it's hard—an energy, an aura, an arrogance. Right. Yeah. He's, he he came in as a winner, and when you come in as a winner, that's there. You command that respect straight away, and then you have to prove that why you're a winner. And like I said, I wasn't I wasn't sort of exposed to his team talks. I wasn't exposed to all of that. But yeah, you could tell why with top players and the best players in the world, he, he was able to, to push them and, and win Premier Leagues and win in, in Spain and Italy. You could tell. You sure. could tell. So let's talk about the future then. You live so much in the present, yeah. yet you're someone that visualises where they want to be. Like, are you ready to go again now? If a phone call comes for Premier League management? Where? Yeah, I mean, I'm due my third child in... 10 weeks <laughs> so <laughs> my visualization is how are we going to manage three kids yeah. are we going to have to mark zonally is it is it it's, it's that's something to to look forward to but from a coach's point of view it's, it's quite strange because i'm in such an amazing position now i cannot take my eye off the ball and it would be very disrespectful to start picturing and imagining other things and i don't think that would be right because yeah. then 
maybe I wouldn't be as good in the moment as, as what I am now. I, I know that everything I'm doing is going to prepare me for whenever that time comes, whether it's five years, 10 years, whatever. We don't know in football. There's no plan. There's no magic pathway for, for anyone, academy players, coaches to get to, to where you want to. I just love football. I love being on the grass. I love delivering. I love, I love all of it. I love all of it. And I, I know I'm, I'm going to have experiences soon that are going to be great, that are going to be challenging. But the moment I'm in now is, is amazing. It's, it's a great position I'm in. I'm very grateful for it. I know that I add value to, to the club and the coaching team and the players. And I want to enjoy this moment because there's pressure in football. Yeah. There's, there's always pressure. There's pressure as a player. There's pressure as a coach, as a manager. I felt it the whole time and you still got to enjoy it. You've got to have that love for, for what you're doing. So finally, before our quick fire questions, if I can rewind the clock to that football pitch on that January day, with everything that's happened to you since, everything you've learned about yourself and your family and human relationships and the experiences that you've been given sitting here at 31, you know, really with the career of a coach, probably 41, 10 years ahead of your time, if I could stop you from going up for that header, would you go for it? Absolutely. It was the right thing at the time. It's allowed me to be in this position now that I'm in. Um, I've achieved I've achieved quite a lot after that. I'm a dad of two. I'm going to be a dad of three. I'm, I'm married. I'm happy. I, I live a good personal, private life. I've got good people in my life. It's, it's opened up different avenues that I wouldn't have been exposed to and exposed me to people that I really, really value now that Maybe I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have come across them. I mean, I'm working with someone now and a coaching team that, that have impacted me in, in such a such a good way that no, I, I don't regret anything. I wouldn't change anything. I, I wouldn't change wouldn't change a thing. The only things that I would change would be in the future because I I, I can change that. I I can be aware that I can I can maybe do things differently. I can react differently to certain things, but everything in the past is shaped me to, to what I am and, and who I am today. So I'm not going to waste any energy on things that have happened in the past. Um, I've remembered the good things, learned from the things that, that weren't so good and the tough moments and carry on growing, I guess. What a story. What a story. Right, quick fire questions. Your three non-negotiables that you and the people around you should buy into. Respect would be one. A good energy. And then yeah, a burning desire to improve. To whether that's a footballer, whether that's as a person, I want to be around people that that want to get better and want to grow. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? My goal against Nottingham Forest, because it was all I'd ever dreamed of to score at White Hart Lane. Every birthday cake, I blew those candles out and wished that I'd score at White Hart Lane. So that moment was was just magic what advice would you give to a young ryan just starting out keep believing keep dreaming keep going yeah quite simple but believe in yourself and yeah just go for it lovely how important is legacy to you yeah the most important legacy for me is the legacy that i leave with with my family my kids their kids because you can affect so many people in this world but I can really affect my kids and I love my kids to bits. My wife, I, that's the legacy I want to leave. Uh, we have a high performance book club. It's got thousands of members. They talk about books, they share books, they get together. If you could throw a book into the mix for them to consider, what would you chuck in there? 
I tried to think of a little bit of a wild card one because I, I do like reading. And there's a book that I read sort of four or five years ago called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. It's quite powerful. It's quite powerful, yeah. Sum, sum it up in a sentence. The way you look at life, the right. approach, the, the mental approach, the, the things you're grateful for, um, the way you see your life, I, I guess. Um, that would be the, in a nutshell, yeah. And again, for our high-performance listeners. I- and the final question, your one golden rule, really, for people to live their own high-performance life, the final message you'd like to leave people with? Yeah, desire, a desire to improve in every aspect of, of what you are, in every aspect of your life, want to get better and work at it. Brilliant. You know what? I've loved that long conversation, actually. Um, it's been amazing to sit and, and talk in the way that we have. And I think uh, you've definitely got something unique and special, like your ability to connect and share how you're feeling. It's hard to put your finger on it, right? But I can see how you can walk into a room of teenagers and also a room of chiseled hardened professionals and get them to follow your way because um you connect and that is a rare skill so um i can't wait to see what happens next mate oh thank you and thanks for having me on as well i've, I've listened to this podcast so many times and to be on it to have something there that's there for my family for for people close to me it's no i'm very very grateful top man privileges are thank you Damien. Jake. What did you think? Loved it. Really humbling, really, to hear somebody that's been on that pathway. You know, what's that stat from Michael Calvin's book, No Hunger in Paradise, that anyone that comes from an academy to play in a Premier League club is in one of 0.01%. And so to hear the story of somebody that's gone on that journey, been amongst that rare group of people and have it so cruelly snatched away and then process it and come up with something even more exciting for the second chapter, who's stunning. I also think that there is a there is a whole lesson here about the mindset that you live with. You know, it's no surprise that Ryan's book, or one of the books that he spoke about at the end of our conversation, was The Secret. You know, The Secret is all about the secret to living an optimistic life, full of belief that great things are going to happen, the people that you attract, the energy you put out into the world the way that you operate determines the life that you live. And, you know, he is the epitome of that. You know, you look at the low that he had. And in in many ways, you know, I think some people would listen to this and go, well, yes, he had a low, but look at the great stuff he had before, right? It's only a true low if you've fallen from a great height. And the point is he got to the very summit. He played Premier League football. He had an England cap. But before he even got close to fulfilling that talent, something totally out of his control removed it. So actually the fact that he did so well makes it harder. So how do you come back from that? Well, it's all about mindset and you can't listen to that and not be compelled to follow his example of being optimistic, believing great things are going to happen. Yeah. I think it's really the stupid point you're making, Jake, that what's the worst that can happen by being optimistic that you either don't achieve what you wanted, but you're a bit further on in terms of your progress or success does happen and it just reinforces it. I think what I would take from it is what he spoke about that having no regret afterwards. And you can only have no regrets when you've given everything to the process in the first place. It, it reminded me of when Matthew McConaughey told us of like, leave no crumbs behind. So if you don't leave any crumbs on the table because you've actually devoured the experience to its fullest, 
if it works out or not, you can honestly come away and say, well, I can't regret it because I did the best I could. Yeah. I also think there's something special about him. You know, sometimes you meet people who have really big ambitions and you leave thinking, I'm not sure that's for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You hear Ryan talk about where he's at and where he wants to go. And like, I got a real sense. You know, there are just people you spend time with where you think, I'd love to spend another couple of hours with you. Like there's something special about you. There's a real connection. There's a, there's a natural understanding. You can see how he inspired the dressing room of experienced pros, but at the same time, every single week, you know, before that was able to work with 15, 16, 17 year old lads and inspire them as well. He's got something, hasn't he? Definitely. And he was a great example again, and it often buoys me this when I meet people that don't have to be loud, don't have to Mm. be sort of provocative or don't have to be sort of controversial in what they say. You can be quiet, you can be contemplative and you can be considered in your responses and still lead really powerfully. And I think that's what's going to define him when he does eventually go into senior management. And I love the way he talks. I mean, you know, we talk about football as this world, all about opinions and all about aggression and all about, you know, saying daft things to get clicks and social media impact and all that. And then you have a guy heavily involved in the game right there talking in the way that he does. Like that's what football needs to be about. That's how we need to talk about the game of football. Yeah. Not the way that it happens too often. Yeah, well, you've got a son as I do and I think the ultimate compliment you can pay a coach like Ryan is what he said that his parents hand their son over to a coach with the confidence that the messages are going to be complimentary to what we try to give as parents and I think that's the greatest compliment I'd pay him. Top man. Thanks, mate. Okay, it's the part of the show where we hand over the reins to one of the listeners to High Performance. And we had a lovely message from Scott, who told us that he started listening to the podcast mid to late 2020, a few months after COVID hit. And he really wants to talk to us about what High Performance did for him during what was an incredibly scary time for so many business owners around the UK. So Scott, first of all, welcome to High Performance. Yeah, glad to be here. So tell us about your business, Scott. It sounds fascinating. Um, yeah, so I started um, Upshire Heating in uh, 2016, and um, basically we um, went, so quickly, and things went well, we started just me on the van, and then all of a sudden we went to another person on board who just called me up out of the blue, then my mum into the business, and slowly but steadily we, we grew we up to 14, well it'll be 14 as of uh wednesday this wednesday so really successful at the moment and um yeah it's i think covid itself uh, i just want to touch on that where it really for a lot of people of course it was it was a horrendous time um and worry for me of course but as soon as i got over the initial worry and the hundred jobs that came out straight out of our diary uh we uh we essentially i, I saw that as, a, as an opportunity as opposed to a, um, a crisis or a or something bad it was it was the fact that i could put in systems and processes into the business so that's now without me being able to do that i don't think i'd be in a position that we are as a business today so big thing for me is uh, and what i've learned from your podcast is to change things around in terms of how you look at it so it's not that i i have to do this it's the fact that i get to do this and it's it's flipping that ground to something positive from a negative situation and and the little nuggets i get from you guys as well from the various guests you've had on uh are unbelievable and to be fair i don't think i'll be in a position now and as happy as i am now uh without these little tools that i've learned along the way from you guys 
Take us into some of the episodes, Scott, then, and uh, and the moments that kind of made you go, oh, wow, okay. There was one, uh, Joe Malone. Uh, that was one of the first ones I believe I listened to, and I've, I've listened to a lot of them, if <laughs> not all of them. Um, and it was about, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's about you have to lose sight of the shore to find new land or something along those lines. There was a, there was a, a saying, and, and essentially that's to let go of what you're um, comfortable with and take some risks so that was a big thing for me and and also johnny wilkinson who i know gets uh talked about a lot with washing the dishes of course um but that that goes back to <laughs> that goes back to the i i get to do the washing up not i have to so i get to wash up because i'm living in a house with my partner and my child and my dog so i get to do it and the other one sort of more work related so we bought uh, another plumbing company. Uh, it came with a late, lovely lady in the office and a couple of engineers. And this lady I knew since I was young. And I, f- I thought she was a bit negative in terms of she's kind of, I've got this great idea and she's going, uh, Scott, are you sure? Are you sure? And so I saw that as negative, but uh, I've got a friend called Jeeve and um, I hope we won't mind him mentioning his name, but he said, she's not negative, she's protective. And I was like, it's a light bulb moment. I was like, yes, she is. She's she's looking after my best interest. She's not being negative. She's she's actually helping, but in her own way. It's, it's also all about changing mindset, I think. And you know what? The single biggest and best thing that you can do is mention our podcast to other people. You know, we don't advertise. We're not on terrestrial telly on a Friday night at 7 p.m. You know, people have to come and find us. So the fact you're helping with that um, is amazing. And thank you so, so much. Thank you. No, no, it's been a pleasure. It really has. Well, there we go. That's uh, that's the end of today's episode. Listen, I hope you, as always, love hearing from a high-performance listener. I certainly know that you would have enjoyed hearing the story that Ryan shared with us today. The job for you now is just to get closer to your own version of high performance. Don't forget, uh, you can also watch these episodes on YouTube. It was a really moving conversation with Ryan, and I sometimes think that watching them, you can actually really see the emotion in their eyes. If you want to do that, just check us out on YouTube. And you can also get tickets right now for the High Performance Tour. We're coming around the UK over the next few months. Just type High Performance Tour into your search engine, and you can find us there. Listen, as always, big thanks goes to you for growing, for sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking, just sticking it on Instagram, mentioning it on Twitter, passing it to a friend, talking about it in the pub. It just makes such a difference to us. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So please chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 